Our University Health Science Center has a top-notch, nationally renowned forensic nursing department. It's a forensics nursing center of excellence, and I'm proud of that. And I'm thankful to have an opportunity to work with these thought leaders in such a critical area of women's care, which is forensic nursing, specifically with sexual assault. I was recently with one of the top leaders of forensic nursing at a regional conference in our state, and somebody from the audience had a very interesting. Comment. We were talking about sexual assault and the evaluation, and this participant said, "Yep, you know, if a patient presents for uh, for sexual assault, I mean, I check them for STIs because these NAT tests, these nucleic acid amplification tests, are just so sensitive that we can detect an infection uh, right at time of the assault." Uh, and so, er, I mean, that was a audible uh, break check right there because I, I had to clarify that. I said, I'm sorry, oh, what was that? She said, oh, these tests are so specific. They, they can actually find when they're just acquired the infection. And so if a patient presents immediately after a sexual assault, you know, we can do a NAT test. And, and I had to correct ship. So I thought at this episode, I thought we would talk about the window of testing, called the testing window, uh, appropriately, <laughs> for certain STIs, because each STI is actually different. Remember, even though we're talking about gnats, nobody does culture anymore. Thankfully, because that was a thing, and yeah, I'm I'm too young to remember culture. Thank you very much. But nobody does, nobody does, uh, you know, nitrogen enriched chocolate auger uh, for gonorrhea. Nobody does these culture tests anymore. They're all uh, nucleic acid amplification tests because they're so sensitive. But this raises the question, because if this seasoned provider forgot a basic concept of microbiology, uh, then it's enough for us to stop right here and do this as an educational piece that just because a patient may have been exposed to an STI doesn't mean you have to test them right away. Actually, that's a great way to get a false negative. So in this episode, again, we're going to talk about the difference between inoculation incubation slash latency. We're going to define the difference between those two things there because in epidemiology, those two words are different, latency and incubation. And then we're going to talk about when tests, specifically NAT tests, uh, can become positive. That's called the testing window. All right. Now, in my population, I mean, it's not necessarily after an assault, thankfully, but patients come in, oh my gosh, I, you know, had a, uh, something happened last night and I had unprotected intercourse. Uh, it was Sensual, but it was unprotected, uh, and I want to be tested right now for STIs. Well, can't do it because it takes a while for those tests to become positive. So we're going to get into this management of the potential exposure, this window of time when we just can't test or it's not advised to test, and then true testing for a true positive result. All right, so let's talk about the testing window for STIs. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Even though in the intro we discussed this as part of the sexual assault investigation, which we're going to discuss, this doesn't just apply to that. As I also said, this applies to anybody who's concerned about possible exposure, like a night of unprotected sex with a new partner, and then comes in for testing. Uh, this is valuable for them as well. So remember to keep this in mind when somebody comes in and says, oh my goodness, just yesterday uh, I had sex with X, Y, or Z person, uh, whatever they are, uh, and now I want to be tested. 
tested for STI. Number one, good for them. They need to take care of themselves. Second, you need to consider if you want to treat them empirically or just wait for the convalescent window. I prefer to wait for the uh, the treatment window. I'm sorry, the, the screening window to pass uh, because I don't like giving antibiotics when it's not necessary. I think that just contributes to resistance and it messes up the GI microbiota. So it's okay to just wait for the appropriate window to pass uh, and then make sure that they come back. Now, that's just a factor there, isn't it? Make sure that they come back. We know that there's a high no-show rate for sexual assault patients, and we're going to address that in a minute. But for those who have a casual night of sex without protection, they come in for testing, you just got to put that uh, in the, on their side, uh, in their hands, that they got to come back in the appropriate time because testing is vital. If you test too early, it could be falsely negative. We're going to go over all this timeline here in just a moment. But I just want to clarify that this applies equally to the sexual assault patient as well as the patient who had the casual night of unprotected sex. Oh, and just a quick clarification about this topic. This was not on our agenda. This wasn't what we were supposed to tape today. But this came as a response, as I mentioned a little while ago, to our discussion that we had with this participant, this attendee, uh, at this conference. I was, I was supposed to talk about something completely different, but I went with this because I thought, uh, you know, we really have to clarify this thing because if this individual thinks that testing can be done immediately after an exposure, then others may think that as well. And so we've got to cover this. Um, um, and by coincidence, we just did a previous episode on urine testing for STI, right? So this was not planned. I'm not trying to piggyback on another discussion on another topic. It just so happens. Isn't that weird? that We just covered that whole issue on STI screening uh, with urine just a couple of days ago or last week, whenever that was, recently. And now we're doing this one. But again, I just wanted to be clear. Uh, this wasn't planned. I'm not trying to bookend our episodes. This is totally impromptu once we gather the, the data because I came home and I talked to my team. I'm like, oh my gosh, we've got to get this thing out because I don't think uh, that people may be doing this right. Uh, and again, maybe it's something we learned a long time ago, but in human nature, we get busy and then we forget. So it's a good reminder nonetheless. So we're going to talk about again, whether this is for a sexual assault case or just the morning after uh, the unprotected sexual encounter. It's ha This has to do with the testing interval called the testing window, uh, when you should probably not check because it raises the chance of a false negative, all right? So there's a difference here between e inoculation, right? That's the introduction of the bacteria at the time of the sexual exposure. And then there's this incubation period slash latency, and then the time to test. We're going to go over all of this. But I want to focus just briefly on the importance of this and why you cannot test immediately after a sexual assault, because it doesn't tell you anything. Because if a patient tests positive at time of the assault, it likely represents a previous infection, okay? So this is ACOG, this is CDC, uh, this is right out of the Forensic Examiner Guidelines, uh, and I'm going to read that to you right from the document verbatim because I don't want to misquote it, okay? So it says, quote, Testing at the time of the initial sexual assault examination does not typically have forensic value if patients are sexually active because an STI could have been acquired prior to the assault. This has to do with the test, here it is, window of testing, window of testing, there we go. 
Also, despite rape shield laws, by the way, those are laws that say you can't take a patient's past personal history into account uh, in a court, right? We, we can't, that's not immiscible. It states, also, despite rape shield laws, there may be a concern that positive test results could be used against patients to suggest sexual promiscuity. I love how the safeta.org website puts it. SAFE stands for Sexual Assault Forensic Examination. TA is Technical Assistance. And it's a public organization that's made just to give guidelines and and tips and tricks on how to do a forensic exam. So safeta.org states... The medical forensic exam presents an opportunity to identify pre-existing STIs regardless of when they were acquired and for examiners to make recommendations for specific treatment, okay? So again, if you're going to test for infections at time of an assault, uh, you know, 24 hours, 48, 72 hours afterwards, uh, remember that that's likely to identify pre-existing infections so, so you can take care of her as health maintenance, but it does not necessarily necessarily imply acquisition at time of the assault. CDC also reminds us that the three most common types of infections transmitted during an assault are trichomoniasis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. BV is the fourth, but BV is not a traditional STI. It's not sexually transmitted alone, but it's sexually associated. Remember, virgins can get BV, although it's less likely. But the three traditional STIs that are most likely to be transmitted from an assault based on patient populations affected are trichomoniasis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. All to say, that's why there's value in testing at the time of the initial examination for overall wellness, but not necessarily for forensic benefit. Now that we've covered that, let's talk about the differences between inoculation, incubation, and latency. The discussion of inoculation and incubation and latency is valid here because the testing window falls into this incubation period, okay? So inoculation is easy, right? That makes sense. That's just when the patient, when the recipient is first introduced, first shown a pathogen, first shown the offending agent. That's just inoculation. At time of sexual assault, that's the sexual assault experience. And if it's a night of unprotected intercourse, it's obviously the night of unprotected intercourse. So that's the inoculation. But then comes the issue of incubation. Incubation refers to the time from inoculation or exposure to the time that symptoms first start. And that's the problem with the incubation period of things like gonorrhea and chlamydia, because the most common symptom of both is no symptoms. Now, remember that chlamydia tends to be more indolent and under the radar, whereas chlamydia tends to be much more aggressive. So of the two, gonorrhea is much more likely to present with lower pelvic pain, irregular bleeding, uh, uh, discomforts overall because it's much more virulent, okay, because it draws in PMNs, causes a lot more uh, purulent discharge. Gonorrhea is much more of an offender in terms of symptoms than is chlamydia. But that's the incubation period, and that assumes, of course, that the patient becomes symptomatic. But again, not all STIs are symptomatic. That's the problem. They go undetected because they're asymptomatic. So the incubation period uh, is a problem. Linked to the incubation period is latency. Latency refers to the time from the patient's first acquisition of the pathogen, so inoculation, to becoming infectious. 
All right. So the incubation period is the time that they themselves develop symptoms, but that can be very different from the latency period. Take, for example, chlamydia. We already stated that up to 60 to 70% of patients with chlamydia are completely asymptomatic, okay? That's the vast majority, which means that their incubation period is really long because they can go for it for a long time without symptoms developing. However, their latency period is much shorter because they can be infectious without even having symptoms. That's why we should do universal screening. Does that make sense? So the incubation is the time the individual patient becomes symptomatic, but the latency, the time that they can actually pass the infection to someone else is completely different. So you can have a short latency period, but a very long incubation period. Okay, so tied into this is the concept of the window period, all right? So the testing window period. The CDC defines this as the time between host exposure to the infectious agent, to the pathogen, and when the test can accurately detect the presence or absence of that infectious agent. Now, we're talking about gnats right now because we're talking about gonorrhea and chlamydia and trick that you can find by a gnat test. Uh, that's our focus. If you're doing an antibody test, that's even longer because it takes a while for the antibody to develop and then be measured in the serum. Okay, So for antibodies, that's a particularly longer test, a uh, bigger window period. But let's focus right now on gnats because I wanted to focus on that, on the gnats testing and, and the window interval for, for the three most common. That's gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trick. It is vastly understood, both by the CDC it is vastly understood and documented by CDC, WHO, Infectious Disease Society, I mean, ACOG, everybody gets that, that just because you have inoculation doesn't necessarily mean that that NAT test is going to pick it up. So when I talked to this attendee at that conference, I said, I, I said a question, why do you think that immediately after an assault that you can identify uh, a bacteria like this, even though it's a NAT? And that was exactly her answer. Well, it's a NAT. It's super sensitive. Yes, but I think we're having two different things confused here because I think she took the science of DNA testing like for for semen. Uh, that's very accurate because the volume is so high, right? I mean, if there's ejaculation, assuming there's ejaculation into the vaginal area, that's a whole different issue. So DNA for like semen is totally different uh, than the DNA of a pathogen. I mean, it's so it, those are two very different things. I think she kind of crossed the two. Short to say is we were kind of going in a circular argument, and I just left it as, uh, I just directed you to the CDC, WHO, and the Infectious Disease Society websites, because, uh, yeah, if you're going to test for an STI at time of the assault, understand that that's likely coming from a pre-existing uh uh, infection, a pre-existing transmission. So again, this has to do with testing immediately after an assault or unprotected excess, assuming that it's you know less than 72 hours or so. So that leads us now into the specific window intervals, the window periods for these three bacteria. Let's talk about that next. I like how the NHS states this. The NHS is not from the U.S. It's from the U.K. That's the National Health Service. Uh, and they've got great info, too. I, I, I'm a member of the Royal College of OBGYN. Uh, I love their green top recommendations. And it just gives you another perspective of how another country does things. Because while they're overall in the same line as how we do things, sometimes they do things with a little different flavor, all right? So the major recipe is the same, but sometimes they season it differently. Uh, once again, nobody gets my analogies. I hope you got that. Anyway, the NHS states this, quote, 
So while ordering an STI test might seem like the obvious thing to do after having unprotected sex, the test result could be inaccurate if you take the test too early. The good news is that we now know the specific window periods for the most common STIs to convert from a negative test to a positive test, end quote. That's obviously directed towards patients, but that says it perfectly right there. So thank you, NHS. The window periods for common STIs, these vary based on what you're looking for. Also remember, of course, that if a patient is symptomatic, they need to check them right at that time. I and mean, don't wait for, for them to, to have this window of time pass. You can check them at that time, but if it's negative, then you can check them again in line with the current standards. So these window periods for these common STIs are all the same based on the CDC, WHO, uh, and the NHS. Now, let's talk about the ones that we're focused on now, which is NAT testing, mainly for gonorrhea and chlamydia. All right. Those are the main ones that we're talking about. Uh, and then we're going to hit uh, trichomonas as well. But for gonorrhea and chlamydia, nucleic acid amplification tests are truly sensitive. I mean, they're the way to go. But the window period for these, even though they're very sensitive, can still range from five days up to two weeks. So even though we don't know the exact time when these convert, it's assumed and basic uh, scientific knowledge that the window period for a NAT for gonorrhea and chlamydia is five days to two weeks. I kind of I think two weeks is too long. Uh, I kind of go split the difference and go seven to ten days. Of course, if the patient is symptomatic, then we intervene before, as we just stated. But in general, it's five days to two weeks. Trichomoniasis also has a similar testing window. CDC states that that's around one week to two weeks. Notice that again, you just can't test right away. It takes time for this inoculum to multiply, to grow, and then now to become detectable. And that happens again during this latency slash incubation window. So trichomonas is one to two weeks. Now, if we're talking about blood tests, like things for syphilis, then the fastest that a patient can convert for syphilis is one to two weeks after chancre formation. But of course, that's the trick, right? That patients sometimes don't know that they have a chancre, especially if the lesion is intravaginal or intracervical. And of course, therein lies the problem. But in general, the window of time for testing for VDRL or RPR, the nonspecific treponemal test, is around one to two weeks after chancre formation. Remember that now we're doing the reverse sequence technology for syphilis, and I've got an episode on that, because the antibody, we now know that um, treponema-specific antibody is actually quicker than some people convert to these uh, nonspecific treponemal tests. So in the reverse sequencing, it's treponemal antibody first that can actually uh, detect infection prior to conversion of RPR and VDRL. Then we go into things that have a lot longer time, like the HIV window period of testing. The window period for HIV test depends on what technology is being utilized to test. If it's an antibody, then that can convert as quickly as four weeks after inoculation, but typically takes 90 days. If, however, you're using a fourth generation test, these things can actually convert as early as 18 days to 30 days. And that's incredible. These fourth generation tests for HIV detects the antigen that are part of the virus and can be present during acute HIV. 
Now, of course, NATS are also being used for HIV testing because you can close that window down, the same as a fourth-generation test. Remember, fourth-generation tests are looking for the antigen, but nucleic acid tests can detect a virus anywhere from 10 to 30 days as well. So antibody tests take the longest, fourth-generation tests, and NAT tests uh, have the quickest, have the smallest uh, testing window anywhere from 10 to 30 days. And remember, if you test early, it's always a good idea to retest again uh, a little bit later on down the road so that you don't miss a potential true positive being read as a false negative for early testing. And lastly, testing for hepatitis B and hepatitis C. These are serum tests, of course, and screening can typically begin around four weeks after presumed exposure or inoculation, okay? Hepatitis B surface antigen will be detected on average about four weeks after exposure. Now, there are cases that it can take, you know, as early as two weeks, and it can be double that up to eight weeks. But in general, on average, you can start to detect hepatitis B surface antigen at four weeks, and the same holds true for hepatitis C. All right, so if you're looking for hepatitis C, if you're using anti-hepatitis C antibody, uh, then you can do that as early as four weeks. And remember, if they're negative, you can always recheck later on to confirm that it truly is negative. But remember that for things like hepatitis C, you can also do an RNA check. You can do a viral load check, and that can be done as early as two to three weeks after possible exposure. So once again, for hepatitis C, if you're doing an anti-hepatitis C virus antibody, you got to wait a little bit longer for that to, to become detectable. Just remember, antibodies take a while, but anything that's more nucleic acid-based can be found quicker. So hepatitis C RNA can be detected as early as two to three weeks after infection whereas the antibody for hepatitis C uh, can be detected anywhere from four up to 10 weeks after inoculation slash infection. Oh, and before we close the podcast, did you see the new publication from Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Green Journal, that just came out this month, right, for April 2023? It tracked deliveries among patients with maternal hepatitis C from 2000 to 2019, all right? So it tracked almost 20 years of data. And as you guessed it, we're going the wrong way. I mean, this thing is up. Syphilis is up, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and of course, hepatitis C in pregnancy. Remember, it's an ACOG thing to screen for hepatitis C at least once during pregnancy. But according to this April 2023 publication from the Green Journal, again, this just came out. And as the authors explain, quote, diagnosis of hepatitis C viral infections at delivery rose almost tenfold over the study period from 0.05 in 2000 to 0.49% in 2019. You're like, is that a lot? Yes, it's tenfold higher. It's a lot higher. And we're going the wrong way. All to say, remember, ACOG states, CDC states, and it's just good practice to check at least once for hepatitis C viral infection in pregnancy. All right, podcast family. As I said earlier in this episode, this was absolutely not what I was supposed to talk about today. Uh, And as I've mentioned before, we have a whole calendar and agenda that we're supposed to cover of topics. Uh, That never works out. I mean, I always I hear something, somebody else tells me something. I'm like, oh, we got to talk about that. And that's exactly what we did here. Uh, 
Uh, so I hope you found this helpful. I was just so surprised that this seasoned, you know, veteran of, of a forensic nurse uh, was testing at the time of the forensic sexual assault examination for STIs, which is totally acceptable. But there, at that initial examination, you're doing it for health maintenance uh, to identify any pre-existing infections, because especially if the examination happens within 72 hours of an assault, uh, it's likely not going to detect uh, a new infection acquired from that uh, violent act, okay? So anyway, I just came home and I was very bothered by that. And I thought, we're bumping whatever we're supposed to talk about. We've got to get this thing out about the testing window. So I hope you found it helpful. Uh, anyway, I'm going to promise I'm going to get back on track with our usual schedule at some point. We're thankful for you. And we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.